back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Once again, this is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute and resident on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Ryan Aris, and with me today is Reverend Dr. Joe Boot. Joe, good to see you again. Great to be back with you, Ryan. Before we uh, get in, uh, we are going to be talking again about the uh, the monarchy, reflecting on the the uh, the funeral for Elizabeth II, uh, which uh, which just happened yesterday, uh, as we're recording this, as we're talking now, that uh, that many of many of you will have witnessed. We'll talk about uh, Elizabeth's legacy, about uh, the uh, the role, the the national role of a monarch under God, and uh, some of the, uh, the implications for for what. To what that means for the state. Before we dive into that conversation, let me just remind you once again that the Christianity and Culture Colloquium, that is a mouthful, Christianity and Culture Colloquium is happening next month, October 18th to 21st. That'll be in Port Colborne, Ontario. And this is for anyone and everyone who is interested in considering the relationship of Christianity to culture, what it means to be a, a culture maker, and what it means to build and shape and participate in culture in a self-consciously Christian way to the glory of God. Joe Boot's going to be there. Uh, several of our fellows, Aaron Rock, Michael Thiessen, Andre Schutten, Ted Fenske, several others. Uh, I don't have the schedule in front of me right now. I apologize. You're not less important, but I haven't talked to you as recently. That's all it is. Um, also coming up is the uh, the Mission of God conference, and that's a uh, a one day general conference, December 10th in Windsor, Ontario, happening at uh, at Harvest Windsor. That's uh, the church where Aaron Rock is the senior pastor, who's our fellow for church leadership here. You can, uh, you can find out more about both of those programs and register at EzraInstitute.com, and we will look forward to seeing you there. So with that, uh, those housekeeping items out of the way, Joe, uh, give, as, as, a, uh, as a born and raised uh, son of England... T- uh, tell us about the uh, the memorial service, the funeral for uh, for Elizabeth. I know that uh, you uh, you watched through the whole thing, and uh, had uh, had some some profound impressions there. Well, it was uh, it was a, a, a moving occasion. Um, on the podcast last week, um, we talked a bit about uh, the the Queen, her her life. Um, something of what led her to the throne and uh, the 70-year reign. But I think for many people, the, the penny didn't really drop. The, the sense of loss and grief didn't really strike. The, kind of the, whole, the whole reality of her death sinking in really didn't happen until the funeral on Monday. Hmm. Um, and um, 
it is difficult to overstate the significance of the event and the reason that, um, just for the sake of our American listeners, um, the reason that it's, uh, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've tackled this for a second podcast in a row is that it is quite difficult to overstate the, uh, the impact that Elizabeth II had um, around the world, the way she was respected. The actual guest list for the funeral uh, was a veritable who's who mm. of um, good and the great, some less good, um, <laughs> and greater than others. Um, but uh, world leaders from all over the Commonwealth and beyond, of course, um, the U.S. president was there. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was the sort of um, if there was a, if there was any ticket over the last decade, um, there, there wasn't a bigger ticket than the than the, than in terms of a gathering of world leaders. I mean, it makes the it made the WEF uh, World Economic Forum gatherings look like um, uh, tiddlywinks mm. with um, Klaus Schwab in his basement with a, with a, with a few celebs mm-hmm. uh, compared mm-hmm. to a couple bags of Doritos. Of- so um that was the first thing that was so striking about it was the the um the way in which the globe descended on uh london Mm. and its leaders and um the sheer number of people that were either um present in the streets or or watching uh, televised i'm i'm told that um three or four billion people uh, watched the uh, uh, proceedings in whole or in part um, uh, during the um, proceedings on on Monday, um, and uh, it's hard to get your head around that. That nearly half the world's population—it's like sort of the World Cup final hmm. kind of a thing. Uh, that there's there's that many people who wanted to pay respects and um, and be part of the occasion. So that is significant. I mean, it was it was history in the making. It was like watching, you know, we've talked before on our show about um, the difference between uh, everyday events and something being history, um, the historical right. aspect. Yeah. I mean, what distinguishes, you know, you and I um, getting up this morning and heading out for maybe our morning paper and a bite to eat Um from the Queen's funeral is that one is uh, history, culture making. It's something that's formative historically. Yes, and the other, the other isn't. And so we identify the historical aspect by its formative character. And so what we saw Monday was the by the um, the sheer focus of the globe and of world leaders on the funeral. We saw the formative character of her life over many uh, decades. And um, the significance of the loss, the change, actually, that um, her passing represents for Britain, for the Commonwealth, for Canada, um, and uh, for much of the world. Um, uh, The the presence of perhaps, arguably, uh, the globe's most recognizable, not just the globe's most recognizable face, Mm -hmm. but possibly the globe's most effective diplomat. Uh, uh, and uh, represent a representative of, of soft power. Yep. Um, and so monarchy from all over Europe was there as well. So that was the first thing that was really striking. And of course, um, uh, to Trudeau, who uh, loves to keep Canada in the headlines. Um, uh, Got to be known for something thing- over here. 
he he did make the papers. Um, the Daily Mail was uh, carrying a story that um, there was all kinds of outrage mm-hmm. uh, at Trudeau because um, 36 hours before the uh, funeral uh, began, uh, he is at a London hotel with his delegation and is carousing in the hotel lobby singing Bohemian Rhapsody. Some people even thought he might have been drunk. Mm. Um, and uh, and that's what Trudeau manages to make the papers for, carousing in a hotel lobby, singing Bohemian Rhapsody, easy come, easy go, uh, on the eve of um, the funeral of his head of state. Yeah. There was um, a, uh, I forget which which outlet it was, but there was a media outlet calling that event a tribute because it was uh, <laughs> he was singing music from the artist Queen. Yeah, well, that's about the level, isn't it? Um, if that's a, if that's a tribute, well, so uh, there were, um, as I say, the good and the great and the less good and the less great there, um, and I don't think Trudeau distinguished himself, um, but that was the that was the initial impression of the thing, the gravitas of the thing. Mm. Um, but, but, but certainly not the most important part of, of, of the day, but that was the initial impression, the historical significance, witnessing history, a cultural moment, um, and a significant one for the Christian faith, the witness of the Christian gospel. When you look at the tributes to the queen, they were fundamentally about virtue, uh, wisdom, uh, self-sacrifice, duty, constancy yes and uh thankfully the the service which um she basically designed um which uh, perhaps we can talk about next um really got to the root of the of of that of her life of those virtues it didn't um uh, skip past them it got absolutely to the root of why did people so admire her? Why was she such a, a tremendous model? Mm-hmm. Why will be? Why will be? Will she be so missed? Why? Why was she mourned and is being mourned? Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's not all leaders um, who uh, are mourned and regarded and respected in this way. What made this lady stand out? And that's what really um, comes to the fore. Right, absolutely. And as uh, as you've said before uh, today and last week, the uh, just the canny uh, exercise of soft power of diplomacy, a uh, a monarch in title, head of state, uh, but in a in a society with a with a prime minister where lawmaking for all intents and purposes, goes on in, uh, in the Houses of Parliament. Uh, we've still got a case where, you know, where the, this, uh, this monarch, her, her opinion and approval is, uh, is sought out and is, uh, is coveted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an important point the, um, that you make. I mean, the real legislative power is, is with Parliament and the Lords, um, but, uh, uh, of course in Britain, but also in Canada, um, the bills need Royal assent. Yes. Um, so his approval, her approval was sought and, um, and she also had these, um, times weekly with the, with the prime minister mm-hmm. of the United Kingdom, 
where the Prime Minister would have an audience with the Queen to discuss various issues, and I'm so sure that some of her soft power was exercised there and has been a restraining hand that God has used as a restraining hand on the nation uh, so that things could have run away a lot faster or worse than they have or, ha uh, or might um, because of her influence. So the... Um, the thing that really came through in, in the service, I mean, what, what I was so pleased about when I watched the services, because there was one at Westminster right. at the Abbey, and then there was one at Windsor Castle, a smaller one for friends um, and closer friends and associates, and not, not so much for world leaders and dignitaries. Um, both of the services were incredibly moving, absolutely beautifully um, executed. Uh, but what impressed me um, was the uh, the choice of songs hmm. uh, and the choice of scripture readings, because it's known that the Queen had a, a major hand in this. She she was the one who selected her readings and her hymns and uh, the structure of how she wanted the services to go, and they were both like one long gospel service. And uh, it was so powerful mm. hearing um, the liturgy, uh, hearing the word of God read, um, uh, in particular, uh, Book of Romans, a passage from the Book of Romans was read by the General Secretary of the Commonwealth. Um, and um, she read it with tremendous power and, and, and sense of insight and understanding of what she was reading. And... Um, these were these were passages about about the sin of Adam, redemption in Jesus Christ, um, Christ's words uh, um, from the Gospel of John about him being the way, the truth, the life. No man coming to the Father except through him. She'd handpicked. You could tell that uh, that a, that a, that a woman with a genuine personal faith in Christ who wanted her funeral to count for something for the witness of the gospel. Um, she had handpicked some just absolutely fantastic scriptures, mm. and the songs were were just all they were they, they were psalms. They were they were all it was all Bible. It was right. all it was all rooted firmly in Scripture. Nothing vacuous. Yeah. And um, I was particularly delighted that one of her chosen hymns was uh, Charles Wesley. Uh, his uh, one of his most famous hymns, "Love Divine." All loves excelling, mm. joy of heaven to earth come down, fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Of course, that is one of the greatest of all evangelical hymns. Absolutely. And for her to have chosen that hymn uh, as one of the few hymns, of course, it's a limited time that you've got, yep. uh, to be sung at her service, to be watched by, by, by hundreds of millions of people around the world, um, I thought was very telling. And don't forget that verse towards the end of the hymn. Um, Till we cast our crowns before him, yes. lost in wonder, love, and praise. Yeah. And I think that, that, that I think quite possibly that in part, that marvelous verse about casting our crowns before the King of Kings um, motivated that, that particular selection. It was, mm. and of course, you know, Probably because I'm, as you said, an Englishman and, and from the UK, um, maybe it did have a, a uh, and as a believer, a greater impact upon me than perhaps some others. Um, but it really did the way the way the readings combined with the hymns and even the um, 
the short address that was given by the Archbishop of Canterbury, of which I had very low expectations, mm. um, uh, stuck to uh, the the core issues of her life and witness, and um, the 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 Lord Jesus Christ and His redemptive work. Um, it was short. It was it was simple, um, and it it didn't it didn't sidestep at all the what was the genuine underlying motivation and driving force in the queen's life um that it was quite clearly christ and his gospel so that was the other striking thing that the 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 gospel content of the hymnody the singing the liturgy and the the very direct um willingness to, to 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 say that it was this faith in the lord jesus christ as king of kings and lord of lords that motivated um motivated her life right and that uh that that brings us to to another sort uh question or issue about the uh the ro- the role of the monarch in society and in the state uh, and it uh, it's got particular significance for for uh, England, where the uh, the monarch is the head of state and the head of the established Anglican Church, um, but what's uh, just interesting anecdote? I've got uh, I've got family members uh, who are in like full time vocational missions training work, and they they travel have traveled literally all over the world, all over Europe, and. And I uh, I asked them not long ago, maybe a year ago or so, what's uh, what's the most Christian nation? And he thought about it for maybe five seconds, and he said, England. You know, by uh, by a country mile, England is the most Christian nation in the West. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that is that's an interesting observation. Um, and uh, yes, despite. Uh, clear signs of, of decline and, you know, some of the faithlessness that we've seen in the West as a whole. Mm. Um, England does retain a, uh, especially for somebody who, like those friends of yours, have extensive experience in the West mm-hmm. and in Western Europe, um, that uh, England retains a, because of this long heritage and of course, in part because of the Queen's role, a uh, an inescapable Christian character that um, secularization in and of itself cannot simply expunge. So, you know, we've talked about it before on the program, but it's buried in our language, in our in our literature. Uh, you know, I ha- I was uh, visiting a, a university recently um, with my daughter, um, a prominent university in the United Kingdom. Um, as she's exploring what to do hmm. and um, went to a, an English department lecture um, that was being given to all of the guests who were who were visiting on an open day um, for people who were considering applying to that university. And um, the English department lecture, the English department lecture for that day is on uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, of course, he's a Puritan. Yep. He, he's um, a compatriot of Oliver Cromwell. Uh, 
did have some funny ideas with, uh, in, in places. Uh, um, uh, and, um, you know, there was elements of, of thinking there that uh, we wouldn't fully endorse. But, John, but that, that, that whole you cannot, you cannot grasp, we were talking about it afterwards after the lecture, that you cannot grasp the meaning of paradise lost without a firm grasp of the Bible. Right. And so whether it's in the language or the architecture or the forms of government or the, the nature of our law, um, you know, that, that, that Christian inheritance is all around you and um, it's not easily eradicated. And, and so I, I would say that that's actually true, um, more so than Wales or Scotland uh, in Great Britain today, uh, that England mm-hmm. still um, re- retains, I would agree with their assessment, that, that the most Christian character in, 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 in the West um, uh, certainly in Western Europe, um, I think there are struggles, of course, uh, across the United States. And you could look at certain states and say, well, in the West, that that state has a remarkably uh, strong Christian character. That would be true. Um, but certainly in Europe, you'd have to look at um, you'd have to look at England. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that struck me during the funeral as well, Ryan, was the way in which what I was watching was a kind of ritualistic, liturgical refutation of two kingdoms thought. Oh, I mean, that's, it really that's was. an interesting perspective. Yeah, it's very, it's very, it's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, the, um, the reason I say that is that, uh, you know, there are various varieties of, of two kingdoms thought, as you know, and we've discussed um, some of them before. You know, you've got the Anabaptist version. Um, you have the uh, pseudo-reformed version. Uh, you have um, a Lutheran version and so mm. on. Um, but uh, w- what uh, t- characterizes them one way or another is that there's, there's a desire to uh, separate from culture, from the state, um, a religious obligation to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. Somehow or another, culture, especially the state, operates in terms of general common principles, not necessarily Christian principles, um, and that it uh, and it doesn't have an ob- obligation to be Christian, and uh, is not is is maybe indirectly but not directly under the lordship of Christ and His Word. And what was absolutely evident in the, the funeral hmm. and in the, the liturgy and in the. Uh, the ritualistic enactment of what was taking place was that all kings and empires are subject to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, uh, Not subject to the church institute as such, but subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this came through very, very strongly. Mm. Um, And there was a sense of uh, reverence for God, reverence for Christ, and the the king of kings whom Elizabeth served. Um, uh, an illustration would be that when uh, at the 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 uh, chapel at Windsor, the second service, when the um, uh, I'm trying to think who it was now. I think it was the presiding dean uh, was getting to the point where the where the casket was going to be lowered um, into the ground although she was actually um, finally buried a short distance from there in the grounds of Windsor, but not actually in the chapel itself. Mm. But uh, ceremonially, she was being lowered. But before that, uh, um, before the burial, they remove two um, 
implements from the top of the coffin that were given to the queen at her coronation. And one is the, the scepter, which is symbolizing the scepter of justice, of God's righteousness, of God's law. And then the orb with the cross on the top of it, and the orb represents the world and the cross, um, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And um, one of the, 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 actually it was the BBC commentator at that juncture, whether he fully understood what he was doing or not, I don't know, but he, he um, mentioned to the audience that um, the, the significance of the orb and the scepter and quoted from the coronation service itself in 1953, hmm. which tells us that the, 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 the cross and the orb is a reminder that all the world, all the earth is under the empire of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. And um, the obligation with the scepter is to administer justice under God in terms of the word of God. Yeah. So the whole thing, the whole service, and, all, and, the, and, and I, I would encourage listeners, you know, even if you're in the USA, and of course you've got a president, and uh, one might argue the president has taken on a sort of um, semi-royal uh, uh, status. Mm. Uh, certainly the kind of fuss that's made over presidents today wasn't done in the past. So, But... Um, you know, for some Americans, you know, the, the, the monarchy might seem a bit more of a mystery and, and um, you know, not fully understand the, some of the significance for, for people in constitutional monarchies, and that's understandable. Uh, but the tremendous significance of, of what was, was happening there in placing the state, in placing the head of state under the empire of the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the, the total acknowledgement of his lordship um, that is actually embedded in the English constitution. That's right. Uh, and uh, in, in that respect, uh, you know, in the, in the English constitution, it is not a more vague reference to God and natural rights, but actually to Christ, his empire, and his law. So at the coronation, the queen is handed the Bible and told this is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. And the expectation is she would wield the scepter in terms of that law. So, and, and as we said last week, that's a, a tradition that goes all the way back um, as far as the Older Testament mm. to the kings of Israel. So that, that, that's what I mean by a refutation of of two th kingdom theology that tries to separate the lordship of Jesus Christ in one way or another from this age or from state or from culture and a direct subjection to the word of God and to, and to Christ's lordship specifically, not some vague idea of a common good or some vague principle of a higher law, but actually the word of God and the lordship of Christ. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's not to say that the uh, the Anglican, the Church of England settlement is perfect. Sure. Um, you know, the reality is when you look at the West, whether you look at um, in Britain, whether you look at Scotland, uh, I'll come to that in a moment. They're slightly different arrangement. Um, the, uh, the 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 England and, and the uh, the Church of England with 26 bishops or so in, in the House of Lords uh, or the United States or Canada. Actually, you've got three. Uh, quite different sorts of um, uh, situations there. In, in the U.S., you've got um, the uh, the written constitution, mm -hmm. um, uh, no established church yeah. at the federal level, uh, and no um, 
uh, monarchy. In Canada, you've got um, no established church at the federal level, um, a sort of soft establishment in the early days, informal establishment, we might say, um, of Anglicanism, um, and uh, a much more limited ceremonial role for the governor general, representative of the queen, um, although she is still head of state. And then in England, the more direct relationship. So three slightly different systems, but none of those systems um, of government, however arranged, if we as a people step out from under the lordship of Christ and despise his word and his law, it doesn't matter what constitutional arrangement we have or what our declaration looks like or what our charter looks like or what our um, written constitutional bill of rights looks like. Um, without Christ as Lord and without his word as governing, our nations will go down. They will decline. Uh, they have been falling off into decadence, as you know, um, for decades now. And um, one of the th one of the hopes, certainly one of the prayers that I had in my heart as I was watching this and profoundly moved by it, uh, as I watched the funeral Monday, was the prayer that God would uh, use this moment. I mean, the whole country was hushed in in silence. People were weeping, watching the funeral, listening to the readings. Um, many of them probably not sure why. It was like having a captive audience for the gospel mm. for several hours across the whole nation. I mean, imagine that as your congregation um, and to hear the word of God read and to, and to hear those songs sung and to hear the, the lordship of Jesus Christ and his resurrection made known um, was powerful. And, I, and certainly it's my prayer that, that this would quicken and reawaken that cultural memory of the gospel and its power and how it was manifest, however imperfectly, in the life of this servant monarch um, who um, lived her life with, a, with the desire of serving the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and therefore serving the people. And if you get a chance, the listeners, I would say, don't just watch the, uh, the Abbey service, the main service with all the dignitaries, but watch the 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 quieter service at Windsor that followed it later that afternoon, um, and the uh, the character of that service, but both were powerful, mm. um, both were moving, um, but yes, both were a refutation of um, a two the two kingdoms in my view delusion that we can separate Christ's lordship and His word from the heads of state, from culture, and from the government of uh, human society and uh, social order. Yeah. And le we're one of the, what do they say? I get lest, lest anyone think that, uh, that what you've just said is a 20th, 21st century culture warrior kind of interpretation of, uh, of these events, uh, which, which we're familiar with that charge and uh, we'll own that, but <laughs> let, lest that, lest it be leveled that, all we're doing is rehearsing 20th century talking points. Uh, these are the, these doctrines are embedded uh, deep in uh, in the Anglican Church at, le at least. Uh, the understanding of uh, what is the the role of the monarch in society. Um, maybe maybe you can talk about that, and we can conclude on a discussion about uh, 
in as uh, as exemplified under the reign of Elizabeth, uh, what uh, what is or ought to be a, a some of the defining characteristics of a Christian state? Mm-hmm. Well, certainly we can say that uh, uh, and would recognize that the um, the import of the ceremony uh, would not be as well understood today in 2022 as it was in 1953 mm. when, when, the queen, when the Queen's coronation took place. Uh, you're right in noting, though, that there's nothing anachronistic about the application we're bringing to bear here. I mean, this, is, this has, this has a, a thousand-year history right. beyond. Um, in England, the significance of these coronation rites, um, the the significance of what the the oath that the monarch is taking, um, that's what gave um, Christendom, the Anglosphere, um, its peculiar character. Uh, in the uh, in the in the in the Protestant or Reformed parts of of Christendom, uh, of course, the Roman Catholic situation is a is one that we can discuss another time, which is which is somewhat different. Uh, but uh, no, so we, there's nothing anachronistic or culture warrior interpretation of um, of of these events. The, the the certainly we might say that our prayer is that they will have a cultural impact beyond what we what we might initially expect. Mm. That this would awaken cultural memory in people um, and make them think hard about the kind of uh, nation we want to have today. Uh, uh, but. Uh, we're not exaggerating the significance and, and or, or the meaning of what was taking place and what has taken place historically. And don't forget, and I think this is a really important point, when we make oaths, and we make oaths before mm. God, um, God hears. And God takes that seriously. Uh, you know, the uh, oath-taking in Scripture is, is very important. Um, and and uh, we need to be, have our yes be yes and our and our no be no, and uh, you know there's a long history of of swearing oaths on on scripture before the Lord yes yes no no whether it's in a court of law or whether it's the president of the United States putting his hand on a Bible uh, swearing his oath of office is again it's a recognition that the 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 um, the monarch or the titular head of the church. Uh, or the president, in the case of the United States, doesn't occupy this office by by some right or um, uh, or by uh, peculiar personal gifting or in any um, in any sense of presumption, mm-hmm. but occupies an office that is going to be filled at some point by somebody else. Yeah. You'll be gone, and somebody else will have to step into this office. It's an office under God, and. Um, an oath is being made uh, before God that God will take seriously. When you know, we think about the vows that we take at, at our marriage um, when we make oaths before God. God takes those oaths seriously, and um, we cannot uh, swear and take the Lord's name in vain and think that God will not hold us accountable. So there is a tremendous significance to these oaths, and I and I mention that in part because since the um, the death of the Queen. The new um, head of state in Britain and the Commonwealth, including Canada, is now King Charles III. And King Charles III has already sworn 
um, to uphold the constitutional arrangements of the Church of Scotland um, hmm. and uh, where there's a slightly different arrangement. And um, there you've got a, a Presbyterian uh, establishment of sorts at the Church of Scotland. Um, and uh, he, he, uh, he is being declared defender of the faith. That actually happened at the second funeral. Um, there's a public declaration that he is defender of the faith. Hmm. And of course, at his coronation next year, similar oaths will be taken. God takes that seriously. That's a pretty significant well, title, defender of the faith. Yes, it is. And uh, of course, that goes back all the way to, to Henry mm -hmm. VIII. Actually, it was, it was given to Henry VIII, um, ironically, by Pope Leo right. X in um, 1521. Mm -hmm. And he was actually given the title for opposing Protestantism mm. initially. And he just kind of and held on to it. it. <laughs> <laughs> so when the, when, the church, when the church broke away from Rome as, as a Protestant, as a reformed, I should say, um, a church, uh, the, uh, basically um, the Pope withdrew the title, um, but it was reconferred on the monarch by Parliament mm. in the reign of Edward VI. So, uh, by which time, of course, it means uh, defender of the Reformed mm -hmm. faith, defender of the gospel, uh, not the not not Roman Catholicism. So, there's nothing anachronistic about what we're saying here in terms of its cultural import, and there's a great significance to oaths that we take that God will hold us accountable, that we will be judged in terms of those oaths, and when we make public oaths in the house of God before representatives of his church and the people. And that's what's going on in the coronation. That's what's going to happen next year. God takes that seriously. Elizabeth knew that. And so she took her, her calling seriously, her duty seriously. And um, it's certainly our hope and prayer that despite um, noises over a number of years prior to the Queen's death of the Prince of Wales, the then Prince of Wales, Charles, um, uh, umming and ahhing and being ambivalent, seemingly ambivalent about these things. He seems to be taking this whole thing very, very seriously at this point. And, and, and certainly my prayer has been that God would awaken a genuine, uh, renewed gospel faith in mm -hmm. him. Uh, it's, it was said several times during the funeral that, that King Charles III had, had, uh, had um, made similar commitment and held dear the same faith as his mother. So we'll see if that holds true, but God takes that seriously. Um, now, one of the, one of the um, questions that comes up as we think about, you know, church and state mm. um, and the particular arrangement here is um, the, the notion of the, the, the monarch being head of the church. And obviously as reformed people, um, some of us will struggle with that kind of language. What does it mean to be the titular head of the church of the, of the church of England? And we need to distinguish between what we might call global Anglicanism uh, as a reformed part of the reformed tradition and the, the church of England, which is Anglican, but has been established in, in England. And uh, that, that establishment is what we might call a soft establishment today. Um, the uh, the role of the titular head of the church um, is largely uh, ceremonial. Basically, what it comes down to is the um, the prime minister is advised by the bishops um, about who the 
the most senior appointments, you know, like the Archbishop of Canterbury and so on, should be. So the, the, the bishops advise the prime minister. The prime minister then meets with the monarch and advises the monarch um, on, on which bishops, um, uh, key bishops to appoint. So in many respects, what the, the monarch is really doing at this juncture is um, rubber stamping the, uh, the will of the mm-hmm. bishops via, via the prime minister. Um, that is not uncomplicated. It doesn't. It, it doesn't. Um, uh, it's not without its problems. Um, largely today, in part because the the, the bishops in the house uh, are, um, for the most part, um, far less than they ought to be. Right. In terms of upholding the gospel yeah. and the authority of God's word, and the liberalism there is uh, uh, is a significant and a serious problem. Um, so there's a the, the, when when we talk about defender of the faith and the monarch being the head of the church, it does not mean that the uh, the queen uh, could you know march into church and preach a sermon and administer the sacraments, or that King Charles will have any such right or responsibility. Um, it simply means that there is a, today there is a ceremonial role in the selection of the bishops. There's a figurehead. There's the notion that. The monarch has a, resp- a responsibility to suppress evildoers and wickedness in the land. Originally, of course, that would have meant also suppressing heresy um, and use the the authority of the state to put down evil and wickedness and rebellion against God's mm-hmm. word. So that would have been the fundamental idea of it. Um, but the 39 articles actually of the Church of England make very clear uh, that the monarch has no role in the ministry of the word or sacrament. Let me actually read to you very quickly. Perfect. uh, From uh, the 39 articles, actually um, article 37, uh, where we read, uh, we give not to our princes the ministering either of God's word or of the sacraments, but only that prerogative which we see to have been given always to all godly princes in holy scriptures by God himself, that is, that they should rule all estates and degrees committed to their charge by God, uh, whether they be ecclesiastical or temporal, and restrain with the civil sword the stubborn, uh, with, the, with the civil sword, the stubborn and evildoers. Uh, and then it concludes, the Bishop of Rome hath no jurisdiction in this realm, of England, mm-hmm. so it's, a, so it's a, a form of the doctrine of separation of church and state, or a recognition of the separation of the office of priest and king. Precisely. Um, so there is a, uh, uh, in one sense, we could say there is a um, there is state involvement to some degree in the church. There is a there is a sort of what I guess Doyavird would have called a structural interlacement. Um, but without the actual offices, role, and jurisdiction of church and state being conflated, so uh, the, the 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 monarch is strictly limited um, uh, in their role. Now, in Scotland, which the uh, the monarch um, swears and Charles the, uh, the third has already sworn to uphold the constitution of the Church of Scotland, in the Church of Scotland, which is a Presbyterian arrangement. Um, the, the, the monarch swears to uphold the church, um, but doesn't occupy what we might call a titular position of leadership within it. So 
doesn't have that prerogative of involvement of appointment um, that uh, the monarch does in England. However, the monarch uh, appoints the Lord High Commissioner to, to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, who has a ceremonial role as the monarch's representative. So even there, you've got some structural interlacement uh, of church and state. Um, but actually, I would say that in both arrangements, fundamentally what the, the goal is that um, Christ would be recognized as Lord over both the state and the church mm. in their respective roles and responsibilities. We can have discussions and arguments about what level of structural interlacement is appropriate or best. Um, you know, nothing has, um, nothing ha about this arrangement in Scotland has preserved Presbyterianism from liberalism um, and radical liberalism. And look at Canada, the Presbyterian church was decimated by liberalism as well. Uh, nothing about the constitutional arrangement in England with the Church of England has preserved that church from liberalism and, and decline. Um, so in the end, it will not be the specifics of the constitutional arrangement that preserves the nation and preserves the church under God. Um, it is going to be faith in Christ, a fealty to the Lord Jesus Christ, and obedience to his word. Whatever the structure, however it's been worked out. We can discuss ideals. My book, Ruler of Kings, yep. Towards a Christian View of Government, teases out the implications of sphere sovereignty. Right. Uh, uh, a sphere sovereignty being a principle that would be applicable actually to constitutional monarchy and uh, Republican situations like the United States. So it, 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 it applies in, in, in both contexts. Um, but in the end, it is only service to Christ, fealty to his word and to his law, which is going to preserve um, the nation, whatever the, whatever the constitutional arrangement. So I guess it's with um, not just grief and sorrow right now at the passing of such a faithful and such a great woman and such a great leader, but also now looking, as we always must, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is on the throne, He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth um, to uh, work in our nations, in Canada, in Britain, in the United States, and turn the hearts of kings and presidents and leaders to Christ. And, and my prayer is that what's happened this week, um, the way the gospel has gone forth, the, the example um, set forth of, of the queen um, will be used in the sovereignty and the providence of God to help turn our nations increasingly back to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our, surely would be our hope is that God would use it um, uh, for that purpose. Amen. May it be so. So we've come from a, uh, a rejection of R2K and two kingdoms uh, through this, uh, this role of the monarch as defender of the faith. And we'll be praying for... Uh, for Charles as he, uh, as he begins to feel the, the weight of the crown. Joe, it's been, uh, it's been great to, uh, to talk with you about this. And, and I nearly forgot to mention, but, uh, Joe, you had an article up over the weekend on, uh, on EzraInstitute.com. It's called the servant queen. And that's, uh, that's reflecting on Elizabeth's legacy and the, uh, the support that uh, that she gave to the uh, the Christian faith throughout the world uh, in uh, 
in her character through her exercise of that diplomatic soft power. So the Servant Queen, we'll put a, a link to that in the, uh, in the description here today as well. And I'd encourage you to, uh, to all go and read that in addition to this show. From all of us here at the Ezra Institute, uh, we remind you that uh, put not your trust in princes, rather from him and through him and to him, that's Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, are all things. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation, and we'll see you next week.